thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 152 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Alison Vickery to discuss gut health, histamine, and food intolerances. You will learn the impact of chronic stress, mast cell activation, why no two histamine intolerance food lists are the same, and the number one strategy you need to do to reduce your exposure to histamine. Let's dive in, team, and learn more with Alison today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you for your time. A very interesting topic and one I'm looking forward to learning more about. Before we dive into our topic, though, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career journey so far? Yes, absolutely. So, um, Prior to 10 years ago, I was in the corporate world, uh, busily being busy, (laughs) uh, (laughs) as many women are, uh, and men too, uh, and I got very, very, very sick. It started really with a series of adverse uh, reactions, including to iodine contrast, which is a common histamine trigger. Um, and I was lucky enough at that point, so about 10 years ago, to have a dietitian who was actually very intuitive say, this looks like histamine intolerance. Um, I was sort of had my histamine reactions reasonably controlled at that point. But what actually happened was I went into menopause, which is a key trigger for a lot of histamine intolerance as well, the hormone change of, um, of menopause. And I started having adverse drug reaction after adverse drug reaction, so all that sort of Marcelli type uh, reaction as well. And I was just lucky enough to come across an immunologist who knew what all of these things were eight or more years ago. Um, And I was in and out of hospital with adverse drug reactions. He pulled out all medication um, and he said to me, look, Alison, you need to get yourself well without medication. Now, at the time, I sort of took it as, oh, sorry about that, good luck. Actually, he was doing me a huge favour and um, if anyone else had have said that to me, I would have gone, what the hell are you talking about? I'm sick. (laughs) But actually, um, and he's one of the leading immunologists in Australia and he's actually responsible for all my care decisions because he gave me some of the best advice that I could have had, which was to learn how to take care of myself, Mm. Um, which is one of the big issues which hopefully we'll get into is the medicalisation of um, (laughs) self-care. 
Oh, yes, um, we could talk about that all day, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and so I went, well, I don't know how to do that. So I said, Tim, right, I'm going up to Byron Bay then, which is sort of a bit of a healing community here in Australia. He said, look, I think that's a fabulous idea and I'll support you. So I came up here and the local knowledge in terms of alternative healing practices was amazing. Um, and then I've progressively just sought out mentors. I've specifically not tried to study dogma, mm. but I've specifically sought out people that can mentor me uh, and have a similar air of curiosity. Um, my current uh, sort of my current area is Klinghart's work. Um, trying to get my head around his work, him having blown my mind <laughs> about six months ago. But there's been many, many, many people, including professors of medicine, including hippies, including, you know, world-class um, functional medicine practitioners that have been so generous with their information. You know, so I've gone from um, being bright pink uh, hypersensitive to everything to my mast cell issues sort of settling and resolving within about a two-year period of not being stimulated. I do have CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, and I do have mold illness, but very much on the upper end of the curve and back under control with those. So in, in essence, I have been on a journey to take control of my own health and happiness. And uh, that's sort of what I believe is sort of what I'm trying to teach my own clients. Mm, yeah, so it's obviously your own personal health journey that's really, I guess, totally changed your career. Um, you have lots of different um, qualifications mm. to your name. So just touch on a little bit of... Um, I guess, more detail around what you see your, you call yourself the low histamine coach. So it's probably hard to summarize, but, you know, what you're doing at this point in time and, and what sort of clients you're seeing, and then we can dive into sort of more of the theory. Sure. Um, so basically, if anyone has a food intolerance, uh, they usually end up with me. So most of my clients have food intolerances. Mm. Um, I think histamine intolerance has become a bit of a synonym for food intolerance, and I think that's one of the challenges that often clients have. And secondly, um, most of my clients have other things going on. It might be mercury toxicity, it might be um, mould, it might be viruses. I'm seeing a lot of viruses in livers affecting liver function and not picked up and treated appropriately by the traditional medicine. So uh, on the one hand, most people are drawn to me because they just have really idiosyncratic food intolerances um but usually it delves into some chronic stressor um which i sort of also believe is a synonym for muscle activation yeah well it's uh, the trigger isn't it 
often. It is, mm. yeah. I'm interested in the trigger, you know, and I know from my own journey and from many of my clients, you know, when clients come to me, they go, just tell me what to eat, tell me what to eat because I've got food intolerances. And it's sometimes hard to understand it's not actually about the food. Yeah. It's just the most pressing issue, like when you can't eat and nourish yourself and when eating stressful, then it seems to be about the food. Um, so that's sort of my client base. Um, you know, I'm getting a lot of clients that have been around the traps and basic issue is that the underlying cause is not being treated which is that medicalization model isn't it it is it is Mm. and you know look I find all the time you know maybe because we're touching on this you know this is one of the things that I see going wrong all the time you know and really goes to I guess one of my greatest lessons I mean if we think about health on a spectrum with at one end of the the spectrum, there are no symptoms whatsoever. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum is disease. Now, disease looks like cells stop working um, the way they were designed, are, are physically incapable of doing what they were designed to do and are reliant on surgery and drugs to um, address the issue. Then we have all this cluster in the middle, which is where we have symptoms, but the body's working appropriately. And the analogy I give in that scenario is of a boat trying to sail upright, uh, but being buffered by strong winds. The boat's desperately trying to upright itself, which is what the cause of the symptoms are, but the stresses are at times overwhelming those attempts. You know, and particularly with histamine intolerance, you want your body to have histamine. You want your body to have cortisol. (laughs) These things are anti-inflammatory or intended to try and uh, repair the situation. The issue is whether the boat is losing the battle and struggling to stay upright under the sheer weight of the stresses or whether the boat has the capacity to upright itself. Um, and so in this, in this model, what we see is symptoms happen long before disease. And one of the mistakes I made was I had symptoms and I rushed off to a medical model saying, give me medication or, you know, give me surgery, which I sort of didn't need in my analysis, uh, because, um, I'm sick. And what I wasn't really sick, I just wasn't well. And so the process of dealing with these syndromes is really much more about creating a healing environment for your body and knocking down the stresses so that the boat can sail upright. Um, And we're just not taught how to create a healing environment for ourselves or how to identify the stresses. Now, when it's not a disease, it's not, you know, uh, for argument's sake, um, diabetes with, you know, with, with a very clear source. There can be a number of things going wrong 
as that boat tries to upright itself. You know, the thyroid's often compromised, but it's not, you know, it's not um, uh, an autoimmune process. Uh, the hormones are often skewy. Things like viruses can really cause a lot of estrogen problems, which then tips into histamine intolerance. Um, you know, once you've got viruses there can, and or gut infections, there can often often be a cascade because the immune system is no longer efficient. So, you know, we can have a whole range of things, not just this one test that needs to be run, run with this one pill that resolves a situation. So it's a really fundamental change in mindset of saying, what do I need to create a healing environment so my boat can sail upright? Yeah, and obviously very holistic in nature, which is lovely. So let's talk about histamine intolerance. What is it? Um, so basically histamine intolerance is um, uh, everybody has a threshold of histamine intolerance, by which I mean um, We've all read those reports overseas where people got food poisoning fish, uh, which was which is containing super high levels of histamine. So everyone has histamine intolerance if exposed to uh, enough histamine. The issue is how much histamine are you being exposed to? Um, and what is your body's capacity to degrade that histamine? So we've got this concept of threshold. It's not a black and white. It's not like an allergy of I can't eat gluten or I can't eat dairy or I have a peanut allergy. It's a threshold issue. So uh, on the one hand, um, we have things that release histamines, uh, which contaminated food. So, you know, one of the common misconceptions, which maybe we'll come on to, is that it's the underlying food, but it's often the contamination of the food by bacteria that is releasing histamines. Uh, there's increasing evidence that uh, gut uh, dysbiosis infections or SIBO, the endotoxins from the bacteria are releasing very high qualities of uh, quantities of either histamine or other amines that compete with histamine. So the bacteria in our body can also release histamine. And our uh, mast cells or cells within our body can release histamine as a protective measure when uh, met with unfriendly um, stimuli. Inf inflammation, uh, toxicity, uh, you know, Lyme disease, anything that it is trying to resolve. So that can create a threshold of bacteria. And then we have an issue of can the body degrade that bacteria? I mean, the body has in control mechanisms to, if you like, um, uh, break down excess histamine. Now, DAO or dimine oxidase is probably the best known um, and it breaks 
lockdown ingested um, um, ingested uh, histamine, excess histamine, and that can be compromised. It can be compromised genetically. But what I mostly see is that when you have gut issues and leaky gut and or really high estrogen or B12 deficiencies that and a range of other minor nutrient deficiencies, that the DAO isn't created in enough quantity. If you like, it's impaired in its capacity to be generated. So we've got this seesaw effect. Uh, there are other enzymes involved, uh, but predominantly um, it's DAO and there's another one, HNMT and a few others, but DAO is the most important all of which are reliant on um, nutrients to work. There is a genetic component, but at least in my practice, the biggest issues are stresses that are degrading the juice those. So in summary, histamine intolerance is an imbalance between the histamine taken in or produced in the body compared to the ability to degrade that. Yeah, so obviously it, it comes from food, which we'll talk about um, shortly, but it also is produced internally from the mast cell activation. Or the bacteria within the gut. Mm, mm. Uh, what it, uh, the emerging research is, you know, and it's extremely interesting, um, I won't go on about it for too long, but... Uh, what they're showing now is, for example, with asthma clients, and I have a client that came to me um, uh, with severe breathing difficulties. Uh, the research shows, and it was certainly true for her, that there is now strong evidence that uh, the histamine-releasing bacteria in contaminated fish uh, is what is driving histamine intolerance and breathing difficulties in asthma patients, the exact same bacteria. So we need to sort of stop thinking of ourselves in some respects as as humans and more as, you know, bacterial Hosts. containers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in that instance, we've been reversing her histamine intolerance and breathing issues through treating these histamine-secreting bacteria. So our body can um, uh, secrete it in response to stresses. Uh, the bacteria and endotoxins within us can excrete it, and the bacteria in our food, uh, and to a much lesser extent the food itself, can uh, also excrete it. Right, yeah, great summary. Um so I wanted to talk about food and, and you just mentioned that it's a much lesser extent. So um, let's start with what the common trigger foods are and what the other issues are in terms of um, perhaps the, the bacterial side of things. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, probably the biggest question I get asked is why are all the food lists different? Mm. And uh, there was actually a really interesting article um, about uh, oh, two or three months ago where a group of dietitians compared every histamine intolerance food list 
um, and found they weren't the same. Uh, and they, they were sort of saying, you know, we need better food lists. But in their opening paragraph, they acknowledged that histamine was produced through bacterial uh, action within foods. And to me, that's the missing component. You will never get a fully consistent list because the way foods are handled uh, between, you know, artisan producers and, you know, other bits and pieces is different. So what I say to people is the first thing you can do to keep more foods in your diet is to pay really strict attention to food handling practices from the time of processing. Um, so, you know, there's lots of food-related studies in terms of uh, histamine bacteria in foods. I mean, clearly um, uh, food manufacturers are very engaged on not giving people food poisoning. Mm. And so we know things like, uh, um, you know, and and so the first point is we want good food handling practices. So what that looks like is food placed in a freezer um, does not kill bacteria but stops the growth. So with things that degrade easily, if you leave them out on the kitchen counter, which is mostly things like meat and protein, um, which has a natural amount of bacteria from the animal, um, you you want to get those frozen pretty much on the day. Um, secondly, uh, you want to thaw them. There is now research showing that it needs to be thawed in uh, warm water, not or, or cold water, I should say, not left out on a bench. Oh so just I do that all the yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you've probably got a higher higher threshold, but <laughs> a water bath is what is recommended. Um, so, uh, you know, how food is handled and the hygiene practices and the the uh, uh, food chains freezing, you know, consistency of freezing is what really drives histamine content, um, particularly in fish and meat and other things that naturally contain bacteria. Um, so one of the things I always say to people is you can keep more foods in your diet mm. by really knowing your suppliers. Like I don't buy from, I buy from farmers and I know exactly, you know, I get chicken, for example, that was processed the day before straight in the freezer. I don't buy chicken where I don't know where it comes from. I don't know whether it's been transported in a, in a um, cold chain, you know, or anything else like that. So attending to your protein sources is one of the things that can really make a difference. Um, it should be worth noting that some people still have protein issues, but that's not due to histamine intolerance. It's due to digestive enzymes. HCL. Mm. Yeah. And so one of the things that I find is people say, I have histamine intolerance, and then you find that they've just not got the digestive enzymes to break down food, and that's what's causing the reaction. Um, and we also know, for example, with Lyme disease, that sometimes with tick bites, you can develop protein allergies. Uh, but for most of my clients, get the 
quality under control and you stand a better chance. I mean, that must be such good news for people because looking at this huge list of no foods is where that overwhelm and stress around eating is created. And, you know, conventionally the treatment is here's a list of foods, don't eat them, see you later. And that is certainly not educational um, and, as I said, is what contributes to the perpetuation of that stress. So it must be amazing news for people to realise that they just need to, um, yeah, change those behaviours more than anything. Absolutely. And, I mean, look, I, uh, I think some of the sort of mistakes people make is that, firstly, they think they have to be on a low histamine diet. Uh, you just go on a low histamine diet for a couple of weeks to see if it resolves things before taking it up to find your threshold. Yeah. Um, secondly, um, I think that there is a huge amount of food intolerance creep into histamine intolerance. You know, you only have to spend 10 minutes in a histamine intolerance community for people to be saying, oh, no, I, I can't tolerate onions and garlic, so this list isn't right. Yeah, right. Uh, and they're FODMAPs. You know, SIBO is a leading differential diagnosis for mast cell activation and histamine and salicylate intolerance in my practice. So all these people that are in the group saying, oh, no, that list's not right because I can't eat this and I can't eat that and I can't eat this and I can't eat that, you know, it's not progressing the conversation as to what's going on. You know, and I think it comes back to sort of almost this medical diagnosis of, you know, I need of, you know, finding the perfect sort of food list like the perfect supplement rather than the underlying cause. Yeah, well, it kind of deduces it to like there would be one cause, which there obviously isn't, as we've discussed, and that it's going to be very individual because of because of the number of potential, like you say, deficiencies or external stresses that that individual is experiencing. Yeah, and the underlying belief that's in play is my body is flawed or something's wrong with my body or I have a disease still where rather than my body's trying to help me and my body's communicating with me and I've got to figure out what it's trying to adjust for and tell me you know so the minute someone comes to me and says salicylate intolerance I run a SIBO test quicker than they can hang up the phone Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, you know, for me, salicylate intolerance is, you know, liver or um, SIBO. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I just feel, feel, uh, I really feel for people that, you know, not only pull out histamines, uh, then pull out FODMAPs. So they've got no histamines, no FODMAPs, no salicylates, no oxalates, and they're down to three foods. Um, you know, one of the biggest mistakes people can make is to compare all the lists and take out everything that any list is concerned with because what that practice does is take you away from your body and trying to work out what your body can and can't tolerate and what's really going on. And the more foods you pull out, the harder it is to get them back in and the more change happens to your microbiome. 
Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, then you develop intolerances to the foods that you eat too often. And that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. So um, I would just, I always encourage my clients to, um, you know, what I try and do is get my clients eating enough foods that they're satisfied whilst we get in and find the underlying cause. Um, so the things that I absolutely pull out are ferments. So anything, get the protein source clean, um, pull out um, any aged or bacterial-loaded uh, foods such as cheese, yogurt, wine, beer. They shouldn't be drinking alcohol anyway. <laughs> I nearly always pull out gluten. Um, I know hate people hate doing that, but it's gluten and dairy is nearly always required to come out. And I try then to keep as many foods as possible in. The other problem I often see um, is that when people pull out foods, they pull out the whole food group. So, you know, their plates start getting very distorted. Mm. And uh, that's not ideal either. Yeah. So, two top, sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to talk about the um, ferments a little bit more because yeah. we do see the, the sauerkraut as being quite a big no-no. Um, yeah. And obviously with the whole boom in gut health and the conversation around the microbiome, it's a very common addition to someone's template. So, can you just touch on more about the problem there? So, the problem is that the bacteria is producing histamine. Mm. Um, now, it uh, is likely that that is not the tipping point unless it's really contaminated, but it is likely that it is uh, adding to that histamine load coming from somewhere else. So, any, you know, for example, um, meat that comes from animals that are particularly big needs to be hung uh, in order for it to be palatable. And during that time, the bacterial load increases. Similarly with things like yogurt and cheeses uh, and sauerkraut and whatever, um, you know, you've got this increase in bacterial load that is integral to the quality of the product and its taste and texture. And, you know, if you think about the difference between, say, Rockford cheese and cottage cheese, Um, you know, one is absolutely loaded with bacteria, (laughs) which is the very essence of its, of what is being sold. And the other is very fresh. So fresh foods, you know, things like meat in vacuum packs in supermarkets are histamine laden because they're not fresh. Just eat fresh, whole foods. So with the leftover conversation, obviously it's due to the bacteria that the food produce, but at the same time, we love to encourage our clients to, you know, food prep and obviously get themselves in front for the week. So is it as simple as freezing everything as soon as it's made and eating your leftovers that way? Is that enough? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, mm. you know, speaking personally, I, you know, cook once eat three or four times for sure um and and you know that guarantees the quality of my diet and i just chuck everything in the freezer Mm. Mm. it's really that simple 
Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's a good explanation because people are being told not to eat leftovers, but they're not really understanding the mechanism why. So obviously, if it's frozen straight away, there's no um, ability for any bacteria to, to grow and to therefore produce histamine. So you can, yeah. of course, eat leftovers. But I'm just thinking about what I'm having for lunch today and I cooked it on the weekend and it's now Friday. <laughs> Perhaps not the best idea because it hasn't been in the freezer. Yeah, yeah. And look, you know, it's, uh, you know, vegetables you can often get away a bit more with. Mm. But, you know, we've got to come back to, look, and I am oversimplifying it to a certain extent, but I just think if you pull a few foods out or adjust them, it often uh, corrects the threshold. I think that's really, really important because, you know, I speak about it in terms of being the ceiling effect. Now, correct me if I'm wrong in this instance, but for a lot of people, it's simply the the sum total of, of things, of, of the trigger food that's causing that reaction. So yes. if you start gradually and, you know, drop down eating, you know, non-frozen leftovers every day, as you say, and looking for where the largest... Um, producers of histamine are, then that could very well be all you need. So why choose the most restrictive route if that doesn't create or if that's not required to create the resolution? And I think that, you know, I think it's coming back to, um, um, you know, that is absolutely what I try to do. You Mm. want to keep as many foods in your diet But, look, I try and simplify this down to it's about the bacteria. I mean, there's a reason that um, uh, one of the highest incidences of histamine food poisoning is in fish. Mm. You know, they've found that if you gut the fish, that is remove the bacteria within the fish, that the histamine load in the fish drops dramatically. This is ultimately about natural bacteria and its interaction with us and with the world. So I always look, and that is a tiny oversimplification, but for the major, in the major number of cases, particularly with those that don't have histamine secreting gut infections or SIBO or H. pylori is highly correlated with histamine intolerance as well because it strips your B12 and affects your DAO. Um, You know, if you can just see this as how can I reduce the bacterial load in my diet rather than can I eat broccoli or, you know, apples. Yeah. (laughs) That's a pretty good place to start. I love that. So what about, you've been speaking about um, DAO and I'd like to get your thoughts on, um, well, firstly, anything that you wanted to add there in terms of how that is integrated and then um, supplementation with the DAO enzymes. Look, the thing with the DAO enzymes is they do work and I know people, for example, that have mast cell activation and they can take, uh, two before, two during and two after a meal um, and really, you know, help with severe histamine responses. But they have billets and they are so expensive. Mm. Um, and most of my clients find that prohibitive. I'd rather find out why the DAO's problem. Do now, I love you? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, with 
we think again, you know, everyone's run their 23 and me and everyone thinks that because they've got a snip on their, their they've got a disease. Yeah. You know, we're in the disease model again. Um, and what I've found is that a lot of the DAO-based testing is just not reliable. Um it, DO can vary and it varies very strongly in my experience with high estrogen and nutrient deficiencies yeah, and leaky yeah. gut. So what I try and do is um, try and make sure that people can eat enough and then try and get in and try and resolve those underlying issues. When yeah. I see... Uh, some of the hidden things that I'm seeing that are driving that DAO, apart from leaky gut, and I work with a whole range of um, supplements, you know, such as the Megaspore Biotic, uh, Digesticure is another one, that rebuild that leaky gut quicker than you can shake a leg. Um, but I'm seeing a plethora of H. pylori, um, now, doctors will often say, oh, I don't treat H. pylori, H. pylori because everyone has it, which just to me is just silly. But H. pylori depletes B12, uh, which is needed not only for methylation but for, um, but for DAO and causes severe damage to the intestinal lining and is highly treatable and is, has a high success of treatment through very natural um, um, treatment modalities, suitable for people with salicylate and histamine intolerance with no difficulty tolerating the, the protocol. The other thing I see a lot of is things like Epsom Barr virus in particular, but other viruses that are aromatizing testosterone into estrogen. These people have sky high estrogen, and estrogen uh, affects DAO um, levels. So, once again, we're going back to, you know, work out other ways to increase this and improve this. Um, and I have I use other things that I degrade histamine with as well. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously yeah. an individual protocol, which is very important because we don't want our clients taking unnecessary supplements and, as you mentioned, you know, having to, to deal with the cost um, rather than getting to that underlying cause. Yeah, I try to just use as minimal number as possible. I'm typically, you know, particularly if there are minor deficiencies, I'm really trying to flex the diet. Um, and then I'm usually sort of only using three or four maybe for whatever we're trying to address at that moment. You know, ultimately... What I'm trying to do is creating healing environment, which is about much more than supplements and foods. Yeah, beautiful. Now, you mentioned um, some of the dietary changes that you do suggest um, and gluten and dairy-free was the big two. Um, do you believe that the sort of anti-inflammatory approach isn't can be enough if you... Um, look at the lifestyle factors that we've been covering and, and the removal of the of the significant bacterial producing foods? 
Yeah, so, I mean, there is a view within, like, you know, one of, I th think, the big issues with histamine intolerance is what I refer to as a mouse cell creep. Um, and so, you know, there is a view that um, if you adopt an anti-inflammatory approach with food that you won't need, um, that your histamine level will resolve. And to me, that's sort of really just trying to put a Band-Aid on things anyway. You know, why is the body inflamed? What is it trying to respond to? You know, and, and the inflammation is really only one possible cause for mast cell activation and histamine intolerance. But in my experience and my experience within my client base, um, you get that stressor out and the problem resolves. I mean, I have clients um, who I've done gut treatments and they've gone to eating whatever they want. You know, we start reintroducing foods, the higher histamine foods, and they get to a point where they turn around and they go, you know what, I'm eating enough now. I'm eating everything I want to. Yeah. Um, and so it's really you remove the stressor, you empty the histamine bucket, and you give the body the capacity to take over again. Yeah, I think I think um, we've made that pretty clear, <laughs> which is good. I hope that's yeah. life-changing for a lot of people who have been cutting out more and more foods or who have been given this horrendously long list of what they cannot eat. Yeah, no, and, and really, you know, particularly, um, you know, if you can't eat ferments, in order to build your biome, it's about food variety and polyphenol content. You can build a robust and diverse biome without touching sauerkraut. Which a lot of people will be surprised to hear because it's so vogue at the moment. Yeah, it is. And I actually have a very detailed blog post on it. And I've actually had a very detailed conversation with um, one of the leading gut specialists about this very uh, topic. And I've got lots of references. Amazing. I will love to dive into that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm against cutting out foods and whole food groups as much as possible. Yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. So throughout the conversation, you have mentioned a couple of the mistakes that you do see in addressing histamine intolerance. Was there anything else that you wanted to add to that list? Or maybe we could do a little recap. Um, I think um, uh, some of the things other than trying to uh, put yourself into a medical model, sorry, medical model, simply because you don't know better and you haven't had that education is one of the key things I see. Long-term food restrictions is another, which we've we've covered. Um, not addressing the underlying cause we've covered. And I think the thing is this syndrome, <laughs> I say tongue-in-cheek, which I certainly suffered from and which most women suffer from, which is I'll just suck it up and get on with it and waiting too long to actually put our health first. You know, I look back and think, you know, how much easier it would have been, you know, if you, if you take this on a spectrum of, you know, first you get, 
you know, you say you get food poisoning, then you've got gut issues, then uh, you get thyroid issues, you've got hormone issues, you've got sleep issues. You know, how many symptoms do we need before we put ourselves first? Um, you know, I've got clients that have been sick for 20 years and never sought help. Oh, we have that so much at the moment, you know, 20 or 25 years with a symptom that I wouldn't be able to deal with for a day yeah. and it blows my mind. And and I my as much as I can make from it, it's like it's this sort of inbuilt belief that we often have as women and men that uh, we've just got to, you know, this Pardon I've got to achieve. Mm. Uh, yeah, I've I've got to achieve. I've got to keep pushing. I've got to you know pull through it, and you know it's not important. Um, and I guess one of the big lessons that I've learned through this is having a secure connection to my body, and knowing what it's trying to tell me. Like you know, you dehydrated, or you know, it's very interesting because I, I often forget to drink water the minute I start meditating. I go, oh, I'm really dehydrated, <laughs> you know, and I give that analogy as, you know, we've never been taught the language of our body and, um, and you know, one of the biggest things I see is not knowing who to turn to for help, turning, trying to put ourselves into a medical model, being told, you know, we're a hypochondriac or whatever because we, we don't actually have a disease, um, but not having ever been taught, um, you know, the simple things we need to do in order to look after ourselves. Yeah, so, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful message. I've absolutely loved our conversation. I wanted to give you the space to certainly add anything else that you would like to and then, of course, direct our listeners to your online hub. Beaut. Well, I just have one other thing uh, that I wanted to mention mm. and that is um, I had the distinct pleasure of doing some training with Dr. Klinghart and he works in a five levels of healing model. Um, we're often stuck in physical body, uh, but some of the things that have made the most profound difference to my own healing are not to do with my physical body. Um, it's been about um, uh, seeing, developing self-compassion for myself, um, listening to myself, uh, sleeping properly. Um, I've had wisdom teeth structural issues that have affected my breathing and also can cause Marcon's, by the way. Um, and so we need to have a more inclusive view of our body and the levels of healing. And I would encourage people to look up Klinghart's five levels of healing article and uh, really think about what, a healing environment would be for their body. You know, stress is one of the most toxic things we swallow. And I've had people, the difference between some of my clients having an anaphylactic shock and or not is addressing stress in their life. So we need to sort of have a much more inclusive and loving and compassionate view of ourselves of what does our body need 
what is the environment my body needs, not someone else's, in order to work optimally. And some of the biggest healing benefits I've had have been around addressing stress, structural issues, sleeping properly, putting myself first. And I think that's how I'd like to to leave it. Yeah, absolutely foundational. And, you know, we're in a world that um, is always looking for a magic pill and no one wants to hear about the fact that they should be drinking water and sleeping eight hours. But, I mean, it's very important. And, we, you know, we definitely can't ignore those basics. No. And really, um, you know, one of the profound practices I get a lot of my clients to do is rather than do a gratitude practice for other people, to do a gratitude practice for their body and have a secure connection and have compassion and self-compassion. So many of my clients find that work life-changing. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Well, and um, our clients are obviously probably dying to, (laughs) sorry, our (laughs) listeners are dying to hear more. So, yes, where can we learn more? Yes, so um, uh, visit my blog, which is alisonvickery.com.au. I have a number of free downloads. Um, I've got some cookbooks. Um, uh, I actually have a histamine intolerance list. I'm about to release a couple of other books. Um, But, yeah, join in. I don't uh, spam or have lots of autoresponders. Mm -hmm. And um, I aim to help in that blog in any way I can, Um, bearing in mind I can't give advice on individual circumstances and I really strongly encourage people to find a mentor that will walk alongside them to help them get control over whatever's happening for them. Yeah, I love that so much. I'll pop all the links in the show notes team as well as more information on um, polyphenols instead of ferments and Clinhart's five levels of healing. Thank you, Alison. It was a really fascinating discussion today and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. My pleasure. I'm very grateful for the opportunity and I hope what I've said today will help someone in some way. Oh, I have no doubt. Thank you again. I'm sure we'll cross paths very soon. Beautiful. Thanks, Steph. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.